Hi, I'm Charlie Albone, and welcome to episode five of That's How We Grow, in partnership with Still Garden Power Tools. Now, it probably won't surprise you hearing this from someone who grew up in England, but I love the warmer climate of Australia. Given how vast Australia is, the plants that thrive in Melbourne are vastly different to what thrive in Brisbane and further north. As the temperature changes, we see the changes in our garden. They change from season to season. Whether it's how often you have to mow your lawn or the veggies that you grow, it's best to work with the conditions you have at hand. Of course, the traditional dry heat associated with the southern states is vastly different to the high humidity in northern Australia. This can change what preferred lawn variety you grow and when you should prune your trees. With extreme heat comes the thankless task of keeping everything in the garden alive, or as close to this as possible. It's a job that requires expert insight and knowledge, balancing temperature, humidity, nutrition, and everything in between. So I'm looking forward to talking with an expert on the impact heat can have on your garden and how to best maintain your garden in those higher temperatures. Coming from Texas, Jimmy Turner knows about the warm weather. Jimmy is now the CEO of the City Parklands, which looks after the beautiful Roma Street Parkland, South Bank Parklands and New Victoria Park, all up in Brisbane. Jimmy has spent over six years as the Director of Horticulture Management at the Botanic Gardens and Centennial Park in Sydney. So let's get into our chat with Jimmy. Well, when the sun comes out during those warmer months, there aren't too many who can say they're as qualified as Jimmy Turner. You could say Jimmy has a master's in hot weather horticulture. He's the former director of horticulture for the Royal Botanic Gardens in Sydney, the former senior director of gardens for the Dallas Botanic Gardens in Dallas, Texas, and he's also worked at the Centennial Parklands in Sydney. He's currently in charge of several of Brisbane's most important parklands, including Roma Street Parkland, South Bank Parklands, and the New Victoria Park. When the temperature is rising outside, Jimmy is the man to tell you what to do and when to do it, to make sure your hedges and lawns look the best they possibly can throughout spring and summer. Jimmy, from Dallas, Texas to Sydney to Salt Lake City and now to Brisbane, you've worked in some pretty incredible gardens. Can you tell me about your career to date? Well, it seems like I have a penchant for picking places that have hot summers. I keep telling myself, you know, I might try the UK before I die, at least for a weekend. <laughs> I, my mother laughs and tells me I came out of the womb with a secretary in one hand and a trowel in the other one looking to garden. And I told my first grade teacher I wanted to be a horticulturist, which turned into a note to my parents about what is this kid talking about? But <laughs> plants are in my blood, but, you know, the opportunity, Australia is home now. This is where I'm going to be, but the... Um, I love gardening in Australia. The mm. opportunities here are just absolutely beyond any other place in the world. And I think it's funny Australians don't realize it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're so lucky with the weather, aren't we? Yes. Public horticulture, that was where I will be for the rest of my career. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the Australian heat can be quite sweltering in, in summer, especially in the northern <laughs> states. I mean, how does that compare to, say, the Texas heat? I always get a laugh when people tell me, oh, you're from Texas. You won't be able to take a Brisbane summer because you're from the dry heat. And I'm like, no, I'm from East Texas. It's the place where you see the giant cypress trees. Think of the deep old South, moss hanging from the trees, yeah. algae growing on everything. Um, I'm used to five months above 40 degrees, nights in the mid to upper 30s, and 60 to 90% humidity of all those days. So You must like to sweat I, a lot. <laughs> I have a very well-developed sweat <laughs> working in horticulture very quickly told me, yeah, I want to actually work in the office. I'm done being outside. Yeah. But Australia, I would actually say the biggest difference between the heat is the fact where I grew up, we had winter rain and summer mm. dry. 
Australia depends on where you're at, but Brisbane's wet summers are actually a bit different. Yeah. And how's the soil different in in Australia? Because I know, I mean, gardening in, in Sydney, the soils are notoriously poor. Is that, uh, yeah. Gardening in Sydney, the soil's poor. It's hydrophobic sand that basically beads off water when it hits. Texas, where I grew up, is black land clay. It's the most expansive clay in the world. We have to bind the concrete of our houses together to keep them from splitting because the ground can split open six inches. Wow. Uh, easily in the drought period and a foot deep if you're lucky enough to have soil that deep and then slams together when it rains. You can't dig in it without breaking a shovel handle. Completely different soil profile, but very rich. <laughs> yeah. does doesn't sound like the easiest thing to garden in, that's for no, sure. Not at all. Yeah. Wow. Um, so what, what are your tips, I guess, for gardening in the heat? The main one for gardening in the heat is actually managing your water. If you're in a space like Brisbane that has high summer rainfall, it's about managing drainage because the easiest way to kill a plant is actually have too much water sitting on the roots and actually letting them saturate. It's just like having a house plant sitting in too much water in a bowl on mm. a warm day. They just rot and wilt. If you're in Sydney or drier areas during the summer, it's actually keeping your water up and keeping your soil evenly moist and watered deeply. I think a lot of people end up doing the, oh, I'll just water it for 45 minutes on Monday and 45 minutes on Saturday. And what ends up happening is most of that water runs off into the gutter or runs off into their hedge border. Trees are happy about it, but grass doesn't actually end up growing. It's really about managing your water and knowing what your rainfall season is. So what, I mean, what's the best way to capture your water? Do you think it's rainwater tanks? Do you think just leaving dishes out when, when it's raining? <laughs> best way to capture your water to me is rain tanks. Rain tanks are a godsend and you don't feel guilty about watering your lawn or your flowers and don't have to pay for it. It's free. Mm. I actually think it's a better option for the environment. Uh, if you live in an area where you can do that, strangely enough, I've actually lived places where it was illegal to capture water off your roof. I just thought was, you know, absolutely really? crazy. Yes, Utah just passed recently that you could actually capture your water, but the state owns all water, whether it comes from the sky or runs down the street, it's their water. So it was it's a crazy. bit strange. Yeah. But being able to capture that water, you can actually then actually manage your irrigation and not be, one, paying out the, the wallet, and two, actually worrying about are you saving the environment and retaining water. There's something different about rainwater as well, isn't there, compared oh. to it coming out the tap? You know, there's the obvious lack of chlorine in it, but, uh, you know, what do you notice the difference between rainwater and, and tap water? Growing up in Texas, the big thing with rainwater is we actually have high thunderstorms. And actually, when you have thunder and lightning, you actually have a small nitrogen content in your water mm. and the mineral contents. And actually, the water is more balanced. And I actually think it's got more of, since it's usually running off your roof into your lawn and other places, you get a bit more nutrients into your water. Mm. Tap water is a bit sanitized for us and for the plants. Yeah. So w when it comes to fertilizing in the heat, do you have to be careful when you fertilize and how you fertilize? Yes. And I've got... Some pretty strong opinions on fertilizing. I tell people if your lawn is already thick and growing and heavy and perfect, you're only maintaining then. Overfeeding at that point is just kind of like eating mashed potatoes for dessert after you've had dinner. It's like there's really no point. If you've got a new lawn and you're trying to get it to go and to grow and to fill in, I tell people you can actually have a brand new lawn and I'd actually recommend for the first year or so fertilize monthly. Get it up and growing and get it actually fed and fattened up and thick because you want it to cover the lawns that keeps the water and the moisture in and it keeps the weeds out. Mm. But you're, once you get to maintaining to me, once every six to eight weeks is more than enough. Yep. Any more than that you don't need and don't need to do it during the winter or the non-growing season. 
And number one tip is go get a soil test. I just let people, well, I just went out and bought the turf fertilizer. Well, what does your turf actually need? And are you fertilizing with too much phosphorus, too much potassium? Do you need iron in your soil to green up your, go get a soil test. They cost almost nothing. And quite often you can get them for free. Whereabouts do you get those done? Do you just search online? You can search online. There's many places you can do it and just dig it and put it in a a baggie and mail it off. And Mm -hmm. pretty much any independent nursery and much larger nurseries, if you go in and ask for it, they'll give you a pack to do it. Okay. And just send it off and then that will tell you what you need to add to the soil. to. to, And then I guess they would test the pH as well. Yes. And it tells you the pH, tells you all that, gives you a recommendation what to do. Okay. So it's the whole the whole 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 gamut. It's like going going in for a health check. (laughs) Yeah, but just for your soil. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah, awesome. That's good. So um, if you're preparing a garden for extreme heat, what are the few things you do? Now, we've said get a rainwater tank or start capturing as much water as possible. Soil is obviously something that really needs looking at. What's the best way to sort of prepare your garden for heat? Well, the first thing for your garden is prepare your soil correct the first time. And mm. I think you get one chance to do that when you build the garden because nobody wants to dig everything up later. Mm. And it's actually figure out your soil profile. What kind of soil do you have? Do you have clay soil? Do you have sand soil? Do you have... Sandy loam, which is the godsend. If you have that, please don't tell me because I think you should be punished because you're kind of lucky. It's like if you live in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, just turn your phone off now because <laughs> the soil there is perfect. But compost is the answer to everything, pretty much, in my opinion. If yep. you add more compost and organic matter to your soil, it helps drainage. It helps actually water retention. That's the number one for me. If you've got a heavy clay soil, look for an amendment to actually help break that up, which compost is one you can also use I think you've got turf stone here and several other things that are expanded shell or pea gravel. You can really break up clay soil to help mm-hmm. make sure your drainage is there. But during the summer, your garden itself and your hedges, I recommend mulching. People have this thing about, well, I'll mulch the flower bed because I don't want to see the bare dirt. But underneath my hedges or underneath my shrub border, nobody ever looks under it. Well, they look under there once a year to pull all the leaves and the trash out and the things that are blown in there off the road, but they never want to mulch there. And I have this thing where I walk over and pick up the end of the tablecloth, the bottom of the hedge and go, all I see is bare roots and all the soils eroded away. These poor things are dried up during the summer, you know, and they've got nothing to protect the heat and the moisture in there. So actually, I always think about heavily mulching your, um, your hedges. When you say heavily mulch, what sort of depth do you recommend? I usually go about 25 millimeters minimum, but I'm actually looking more about 50 to 75 because you actually want a bit of stuff and you want to break down. You want to bring in back in the earthworms and the natural Mm. biome. I guess anything more than 75 mil, you're going to stop rainfall getting down. Is that right? Yes. Anything much more than that, you actually end up kind of putting a barrier. And I recommend doing it if it's, if you're in a rainy, heavy climate, you know, if you're getting rain, lucky you, but during the middle of the summer, you don't want to do it too thick during mid-summer when it's actually raining because you actually hold too much moisture and it can be a bit of a problem. So it's something I actually usually do in the spring or in the autumn. Okay. And do you use a coarse mulch or a fine mulch? I'm a big believer in compost as mulch or a fine mulch because I actually find that it breaks down quicker, which is good. And there's this whole belief, well, I don't want my mulch to break down quick. I want it to stay there for two or three years so I don't have to do it very often. And it's actually, you're not feeding your soil. You're not adding any carbon to it. Um, This isn't a parking lot. This is a living thing and you're feeding it something to break down. So I actually prefer a, a medium to fine mulch. Yeah, I've been using, I use a lot of pea straw in my garden because I'm always adding in stuff and I, you know, I don't mind digging that through. Uh, and then in areas like under my hedges, I use something a bit more coarser, like a, a coarser pine bark. Um, yes. Yeah, you know, something like that, that, that sort of works. Um, you mentioned uh, hydrophobic soils. Now, for those that don't know, that's 
where a soil is scared of water, <laughs> really, is what the name means. It, you know, the water just doesn't soak into the soil. I kind of liken it to you pour some water on your soil. If it kind of goes like mercury, you know, it kind of bubbles around and doesn't go in, you've got a hydrophobic soil. It's a it's a fungus that coats the the soil and, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and, and, and uh, the water just doesn't go in. Uh, so what is the best way to fix that? Because it seems like a horrible uh, situation. Awful. Horrible thing to do. I always say, if you're watering your lawn, it looks like you're watering your car after it was freshly waxed. You've got problems. If it soaks right in, you're good. Um, Soil wetting agents are a really easy fix, and you can drench your soil with that, which actually allows it to penetrate into the ground much quicker. Mm -hmm. And there's several different options in that area. If it's a new soil or a new garden or a new area, you can actually break in mulch and stuff, which helps with that, or Mm -hmm. compost. Actually, uh, till that in or dig that in. But really, you know, if you're looking at a lawn and a turf, the best answer really is a soil wetting agent. And how often can you use those? Like, can you overdo it? You can overdo it. Um, I recommend following. I've actually stopped giving just a general option on this one because I've read different ones and I've used ones that sometimes last for two to three months, some that last a season, and some that only last literally a week. So right. it really depends on the one you use. Okay, so it's, it's product dependent, I guess. Yes. Um, you mentioned compost. Now, I'm a huge compost fan. Uh, you know, like, like you said, it, it, it does wonders for almost every type of soil. Um, do you recommend people make their own or buy in compost? Make your own and you'll never make enough. I compost everything in my house. It's almost embarrassing how much I enjoy making compost. I have a worm composter. I have a compost bin, a compost pile, and I've never made enough compost to make a difference in my yard. Do you, do you go to the shops and buy stuff just because you think it will be a nice addition to the compost heap? <laughs> <laughs> there has been a thought before. It's like, I don't really like that chair anymore. I could mulch that chair. Compost. I'm the person who looks at cardboard boxes and shreds them and puts them in my compost bin. Yeah. What's the, uh, so with compost, you sort of, you need the mixture of brown waste, like sort of the carbon and the green waste. What is your ideal combination of the two? Because I've I've read a few and tried a few different ratios. What have you found works best? I've actually, having lived in a couple of different climates, one, it depends on your humidity and your temperature. Mm -hmm. Um, I find when it's really hot and all things break down, if you keep them too dry, they don't break. My worm composter really is a one-to-one of brown to green, mm-hmm. and sometimes two to one, because if I do my worm composter too much green, it gets too hot, too acidic, and my worms get very unhappy. Mm. My compost pile, I actually do one to one, but I use a lot of grass clippings go straight in there. Everything from my hedge border, garden waste, kitchen waste. So I actually shred cardboard and paper that I get and put in there, and mine's actually equal amounts. Okay. And that's mainly in Texas and here in Brisbane when the humidity is at this level, it's actually absorbing a lot of moisture. But one to one or two to one are the usual do you, uh, and, do you add your weeds in there as well, or do you keep those out? I add my weeds. I know this whole thing is like, don't add the weeds and the seeds. My composter heats up pretty good. So it just um, knocks them out. It, even, it an knocks on, them even onion weed? That one, no. Maybe not. <laughs> not, not that evil thing. That thing is <laughs> it's killing me at the moment in my garden. I'm just... I, oh. You can seal it under concrete. It still comes up. I know. It's amazing. If only other things grew <laughs> like that. I mean, it'd be great, wouldn't it? Um, so... When you're preparing your lawn for a hot spell, uh, you know, the old adage of, of getting the right plant for the right spot, I guess, is key and, and, and making sure you have the right varieties for, for that, uh, for, your, for your situation. Is there any other tips you can have for, for getting a good lawn in heat? A good lawn heat, watering is still my number one on that one. And some good rule of thumbs are about 25 mils or an inch of water per week. 
which is usually about three times for 20 minutes, but that depends on your irrigation system. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the new low flow ones don't do as much as fast, which is actually better. Some of the old ones can put out you know, 25 mils of water in five minutes. I've actually, you know, it's like being in an old 1950s shower. I tell people, and I know this is a bit basic, go get a cat food can or a tuna fish can, put it in your lawn, turn your irrigation on for 20 minutes and see how long it takes to fill it up. Okay. Should fill up a tuna can or a catfish can in a, probably about by half in 15 to 20 minutes. And that tells you you're getting about half of that. And you, that's about normal if it's doing more or less. But you want a tuna fish a can mm. per week. Okay. So I actually break that into three times a week at about 20 minutes. And another great trick is if you have a soil, if you run your irrigation and see it running out on your sidewalk, your driveway, are really not soaking in, is almost all modern irrigation systems, you can take that 15, 20 minutes and divide it into three little spurts, spray it a little bit, wait an hour, spray it again, wait an hour, spray it again, and do that in the evening or early morning. That way it doesn't evaporate as quick, saves a bit of water. Oh, that's that's a that's a good tip, and I guess it kind of uh, will evenly distribute that water throughout. You know, soil's a bit like a sponge. If you've got yes. good soil, it will soak it up. Uh, I was talking to Joe Rogers, um, a, a turf specialist, and he was suggesting that perhaps you should water less often and and more to kind of draw the roots down into the soil. What's your opinion on that? If you've got a new soil, water often. If your soil is established, the only thing I found out is if you let your soil dry out. Too often, which tends to happen with a lot of amateurs, if you let it dry out between watering to the point where it's starting to well, it takes forever to get enough water back down into it. Mm-hmm. If you've got a really well-established lawn and you've got good percolation in your soil where your soil actually absorbs water quickly, twice a week is more than enough. But once a week, if you've got a really good turf and you've got decent rainfall, my personal pet peeve is people who put on their irrigation system and run it three times a week, whether it's raining outside or not, get a bloody rain Get a rain sensor. It yeah. Yeah. It'll do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> it does it all for yeah. you and it doesn't cost that much. Yeah. It just plugs into the side. What's the most uh, effective time to water as well? Because, um, you know, I've been taught early morning, late afternoon is the best. But then I guess sometimes in humid climates, you can just uh, extrapolate any fungal problems that, that you've got as well. Yes. Um, tell you the truth, grass, the turf, the hedges, your lawn, really, and your flowers don't really care what time of day they're watered. Mm-hmm. You know, rainfall comes night or day, depending on what season it is. And it can, you know, rain here in Brisbane and Sydney and turn 40 degrees 15 minutes later. And the plants are perfectly fine. I've always been of the opinion water late evening, early morning, if you want to save water. If you live in a really humid climate, though, the longer that moisture sits on your plants, the more you're going to get fungal issues. So sometimes, in my opinion, that means you actually should water late morning, early afternoon, so it dries off quickly. Mm -hmm. And another good trick that I quite often tell people is if you've got a new lawn or you're trying to establish something or you're having severe heat, and I'm talking like we had a couple of years back when it was just bloody hot during the summer, a little midday 15-minute spray, yes, you're not really watering your lawn as much, but you're actually cooling it off. And if you've used this analogy, your turf, since it's such an exposed flat site, if you've ever taken your shoes off and tried to walk across a bitumen on a day that's hot, your turf actually heats up to a point where it's too hot and it's not growing, it's respiring too heavily, and that actually kind of gives it, it's kind of like, you know, stepping into air con for your turf for an hour or two while that evaporates and dries off, so it cools off your lawn a little bit. Mm. I only do that during severe heat stress, but it is a good way of kind of putting a, a life preserver out in your lawn. Yeah, that's that's a good tip as well. With trees in the heat, uh, you know, especially in some of those really scorching days you get in the middle of summer, uh, what's your recommendation there? Do you just suggest soaking the soil for as long as possible in the in the evening or morning, or, or what are your tips there? 
With trees, usually they're planted in turf or they're planted near flower beds or planted somewhere where you're actually watering already. So the mm -hmm. water should already be in there and it should already be saturated. But if you're having severe drought stress, you know, deep soaking is your best option. But just remember, 90% of a tree's roots are in the first couple inches of the soil. So really, that's where they're looking for their nutrients and stuff. And their water uptake's a little bit lower than that. But just a good heavy soak does wonders. Good heavy soak. Yeah. It's quite funny. I, um, I follow a few people on Instagram that just sort of work on topiary in the UK. You know, all they, all they do is, <laughs> is trim boxes and hedges. Uh, and I laugh because, you know, get, they're like, oh, it's a hot day today. It's 20, 23 degrees. Or something. <laughs> they're pruning with no shirt on, and, uh, you know, but then they'll get a sheet and cover the hedge up afterwards. They all don't want the hedge to get sunburned. Do you find that happens in, in hot or, or do you think that's just a bit ridiculous? Kind of like, well, first of all, how the hell do they prune those things in perfect little round meatballs with, I know. with just nothing but an eyeball and a hand shear? Mm. It's amazing. I, having lived in Texas, lived in Utah, in Sydney, now in Brisbane, I very seldom see leaf scorch on most plants, including boxwood, mm -hmm. unless it is, you know, we're talking 40 or above, and you're taking something really heavily back to leaves that haven't had any sunlight on them, because it's, you know, kind of like if you take your houseplant outside on a warm day and stick it in full sun, it's going to sunburn. But those hedges have been sitting out there and with, you know, several, you know, millimeters deep into the shrub, they've had full sun. I've never had to shade something that I've actually seen something burn. Mm. The only one I would actually say I've ever done that I've actually made a mistake on was a hydrangea. Hydrangeas, if you prune them and their bottom leaves haven't adjusted, they will drop every leaf yeah. on the shrub in a yeah. moment's notice. Yeah, yeah, they will. <laughs> they tell you when they're thirsty as well. They <laughs> yes. really do. Uh, you know, another thing uh, which I was taught in the UK, which I found out is a load of hogwash as well, is don't let water sit on the leaves of your plants because it, you know, it works like a magnifying glass and it will burn your leaves. That's 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 been proven to be load this of rubbish, isn't it? Garden myth. Yeah. If that happened every time it rained, every tree in the forest would have holes through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, humidity is is an issue. Um, what's the difference between a really humid climate and and a dry climate when it comes to sort of trying to save some water and look after your garden? Utah was like living in a food dehydrator. You know, a good humid day in Utah was 20%, mm. which, you know, your towel never stinks, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. But also having a rose garden there, you never, ever have to spray for black spot or powdery mildew. And I found that was a bit of a surprise for me because I've always lived in humid climates. Mm -hmm. The big one is really fungal disorders and managing that, which if you've got plants that are susceptible to it, overhead irrigation, which most people have in their lawns, are not wonderful for plants that suffer from irrigation or suffer from um, fungal issues. Roses being an absolute perfect example, you know, so Mr. Rosen. You think a drip irrigation is better in that sort of a climate? Drip irrigation is better in that climate or water early in the morning or late in the afternoon, or sorry, late in the morning or early evening, so it dries off quickly. Okay. Um, I've grown roses here in Brisbane and in Sydney in both of those cases. I'm personally, I personally hate drip irrigation because I always have to fix it too many times and you know when it's broken when your plants are dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you always put a shovel through drip irrigation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, people think in uh, the heat, a lot of people are, are growing cactus and succulents thinking that's the only thing you can grow. Do you have any other plants that, you know, just do really well in the heat? I know I that I've seen your Instagram in, in Brisbane and, and pruning that massive Bougainvillea tunnel. <laughs> That's like painting the Harbour Bridge, isn't it? Oh, it really actually is. They pretty much start at the one end of that thing, prune to the other end, stop, then kind of repeat. It's kind of a constant pruning. We just need to invent some kind of, you know, roving. Hey, still, you need to come up with this for me. <laughs> Electric-powered Bougainvillea tremor. Yeah. Uh, 
I really believe in color. You know that if you've watched any of me and my social media channels, color to me is one of those things that draws people, you know, the artwork in your house, the color throw pillows you throw on your couch in your house. Those are the things that people remember, not your beige and uh, backdrops. Hedges and lawns are nice settings, but they're not what people remember. Color should be used appropriately to your settings. So a couple of big pots at the front door or somewhere to showcase where you want to. But there are some wonderful options for full sun and heat and for shade. Mm-hmm. Probably one of my current ones, favorites is Sun Patients, um, a New Guinea hybrid. They are sterile, so they don't seed. They're god-awful water hogs. They mm-hmm. will suck up a saucer full of water every day during the summer, but they never stop blooming, so it's worth it. You don't want a whole lawn full of them, but two yeah. pots is great. Salvia, anything with the word salvia in front of it, which I think, you know, salvia is Latin for I like hot weather. Yeah, but I flower for a long time. <laughs> salvia mystic spires blue, which gets a meter, meter and a half. And it's one of those plants you can take your aggression out with a pair of pruners anytime you want to and whack it back and it comes right back. And uh, perennial. Pruners. I mean, so you can get huge salvias, you can get tiny salvias. salvias. They're so versatile and, and they're so easy to, to care for. And you can get them in any color. You can get them in any size. The uh, Go-Go series from Proven Winners is one of my favorites. The lovely... Um, Mesa series, which is the Salvia Gregii, which is a Texas native. So it actually can take super cold or super hot, super dry or super wet, doesn't care and can't kill it. And it kind of grows like a hedge. Mm. Uh, Pelargonium calliope, the geranium calliope series, which is actually mm-hmm. an interspecific hybrid. So it doesn't make seeds. So you don't have to deadhead those ugly little dead dry spider looking flowers off of it all the time. And it blooms in the Sydney uh, trial garden. It probably bloomed for us a good 11 months out of the year. Yeah, that's <laughs> impressive. There's not many things that will do that. I mean, some of the euphorbia stardust and stuff like that will, yes. will do it. But uh, no, yeah, no, there's not, that one. yeah, there's not much that, uh, that, that flowers as, as long as that. But there are some really good options out there. What about um, fruit trees and things like that for the heat? Fruit, fruit trees for the heat. Um, there is no shortage of fruit trees for the heat in Australia. You're lucky you don't get that cold or that hot. Sorry, but you really don't get that hot. I've no. lived in Utah now. <laughs> 48 <laughs> degrees is a possible day. Yeah, that's um, pomegranates, fig trees, macadamia nuts, in no shortage of different fruit trees. And you know, things that fruit in the summer, pomegranates are one of my favorite. Just pick a variety that tastes good. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of varieties on the market. I actually think Wonderful, which is the number one sell variety, is one of the worst tasting pomegranates in the world. And I've tasted, it's one of my favorite fruits, so I'm quite picky about it. Yep. Figs are an interesting plant. They are actually better when they're hot and dry in the summer. Yes. If they're kept too wet uh, here in Brisbane, the figs don't get as sweet, in my opinion, because they're not, they don't wilt as much. Actually, in Texas, where I grew up, there's no rainfall in the summer, and they literally look like dried up um, wash rags hanging off the the branches because the leaves are so dripping, you know, dried out. But the fruit's just almost like pure sugar. A good hint for that one is to grow them on a raised setting or somewhere where the soil drains quickly, so you can actually stay sweeter. Yeah. Okay. And and but they like a wet winter, do they? So they, they, they do like a yeah. They like a wet winter and wet spring, but actually in the summer when they're actually making their fruit, they actually prefer to dry out a bit. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I, yeah, I've, I've wondered about growing figs. I actually just planted some, so that's why, that's why I'm putting <laughs> you on them. Luckily, I put them in a raised bed, so uh, they should should be okay. Um, you mentioned making your own compost. It's something I really like to do. Uh, you can never make enough. Um, do you shred yours up to sort of try and reduce the, or, or I guess increase the surface area, but, but you know, so you can get more in your compost heap? Yes, I do shred my up. Uh, anything I can actually make smaller, it breaks down faster. Mm-hmm. And when I do take it out of anything that didn't go through the first one and break down very much, I throw it back in the top of the bin. But a good shredder or chipper will work. I hate to admit, I've 
stood there long enough to get RSI in my right hand, you know, chopping something up with my pruners to so I could put it in there. Um, I even have, I have to admit, I'm a bit obsessive about my compost. I went and bought one of the most highest powered home paper shredders so I can run two ply cardboard through it because cardboard is an amazing <laughs> source of brown. If you don't have a lot of leaves in your lawn and yes, living in Australia, you don't have seasonal uh, leaf drop like we do in the U.S., is this a great opportunity to actually add more of the brown to it. So any cardboard box that comes to my house is like, yay! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you must have been enjoying lockdown, you know, just ordering stuff <laughs> just for the boxes. Yes. I don't need this, but I need the box, so I'm going to buy it. <laughs> just just make sure to peel off the plastic shiny coating on the front of it, or you end up picking it out of your flower beds for yeah, years. Sure. So you mentioned, I, I mean, you know, Australia doesn't get much leaf drop like, say, the US would. But, you know, if you do have some deciduous trees, would you add that to your compost or would you solely keep that to itself and maybe make something like leaf mold, which, you know, is, is different but also useful in the garden? When you have a lot of drop all at once, it's hard to add that to your compost at one time is what I found. So I actually do... I've done a bit of both. So mm -hmm. one of the happens for me is I end up running my lawnmower over it, sucking it up, and what I've chipped up pretty fine, I put what I can in the composter mm -hmm. or pile up somewhere and the rest of it chip up and then pile in one big pile and just let it kind of break kind of make leaf mold. Or if you have a big enough yard and you have space, I've actually just done that, then run underneath my hedges and actually put it, you know. Put it back as mulch. Put it back as mulch and it actually Complete just breaks the down the life. Yes. And yeah. just tuck it underneath where people can't see it because it's not the most attractive mulch, but it does break down really quickly. Yeah. And it's really good for, for adding air to the soil, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Um, do you have any other tips for people that uh, live in a hot climate or, or I guess, are, are struggling through a drought or looking, looking to drought-proof their garden in the future? Probably my first tip is to make sure about your soil amendments and make sure you get that right. If you start in your garden, back to compost, and I'll keep harping on that one until yeah. they bury me in the soil. <laughs> Second one is your plant choice. Mm-hmm. Some plants work better than others. And how do you find that out? Walk around and wander and visit your neighbors. Go see gardens. Go visit botanic gardens, parklands, and see what they're using, what's blooming, what time of year, what's holding up to their climate. Don't be afraid to kill a few plants. Sorry, the, the success of my garden is built on the compost of my failures has been one of my taglines for most of my career. You have to kill a few plants to learn how to grow things in your own lawn. And Absolutely. even though someone tells you exactly how it should grow or where it should grow, your yard is completely different. I've seen things grow places like the heck are you doing that? You're not even a trained gardener. <laughs> Plants don't read books, so don't be afraid to try things. Yeah, that's that's great advice. I guess also uh, pick the times you garden as well. Don't go out in the, don't go out in the middle of the day and start double digging your garden. It's it's not ideal. And wear your sunscreen. And wear your sunscreen. Yeah, you must you must have shares in sunscreen. The places you've lived. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't wear it for most of my life, so now I'm paying for it. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> sunscreen up well Jimmy it's been amazing thank you for all your tips I'm sure uh, the listeners are going to be able to take a lot from it so thank you for your time thanks Charlie it is now time for our community questions now Pete from Brisbane he's emailed me and he says hi Charlie I'm passionate about my garden but I fear I use too much water to keep my plants alive particularly in summer so what advice do I have for him well my number one advice is get yourself a rainwater tank get one as big as you can afford and attach it to as much roof space as you possibly can. That way you're going to capture as much rainwater as possible and you can use it when it's most needed. You need to water wisely as well. I know Jimmy gave us some tips saying that watering in the middle of the day can help a lawn, but really if you want your water to be effective, you need to do it late in the evening or early in the morning. That way the plants can soak it all up and you're not going to lose as much through evaporation. 
You also need to give your soil a bit of love. Adding compost to your soil is the best thing you can do. It's going to help to bind sandy soil together. It's going to help to break up clay soil, but it's going to help in that water retention as well. So you're not going to feel bad about splashing your water around and you're going to have to water a lot less. Now, my next question is from an aspiring gardener and a big fan of the podcast. It's five-year-old James. Thanks for listening, James. Now, he says he wants to learn how to take care of plants properly and to give them the right amount of water. How do you know when a plant needs water and how much do you need to give them? Well, James, don't be afraid to kill plants. I have killed plenty of plants in my lifetime trying to keep them alive. And the good thing about killing plants is they become great compost. And you learn so much from killing a plant. You know if you've overwatered it or you've underwatered it. And then next time you grow it, you can make the changes and it will thrive. Now, the moment your plant is thirsty, it's going to wilt. So the leaves are going to start drooping. It's going to start looking a little bit sick. That's when it needs water. You can stick your finger in the soil. If it feels wet and moist, then you don't need to water anymore. If it feels dry, it's time to give it a really good soak. And remember, it's probably better to keep your plants a little bit dry than it is overwatering them because you don't want anaerobic buildup in the soil and then you get a lot more problems. Last question is from Trent from Queensland. He says, with no shady trees around, should I build my own shade structure to give the plants the best survival opportunity through the hotter months? Well, the best shade structure, Trent, is to plant some shade-giving trees. They would be lovely and they'll add a real maturity to your garden, which will be nice. If you really can't plant trees for whatever reason, then yes, you can erect a shade structure. Make sure you make one that you can take the shade cloth off so in winter you can maximise your sun. Well, do you have any gardening questions you'd like me to answer? Send me an email at charlie at still.com.au. It was so great to speak with Jimmy Turner today. He sure is a character and he has some incredible experience managing some of the best public parks. Well, what did we learn from him? We learned that improving your soil is the best way to maximize your watering and that compost or compost, as he calls it, is everything. So make as much compost as you possibly can. And a way to make more is to get yourself a good quality still shredder. You can shred it up and it will turn into compost quicker. And that way your pile can keep turning quicker and quicker and you'll have more and more. Also, it's okay to kill plants, but it's even better if you let your neighbors do it. So if you're worried about what plants to use, look around your local area, go to your local botanic garden, see what's thriving and steal their ideas. Thanks for listening to That's How We Grow in partnership with Still Garden Power Tools. Need the tools to take on any garden challenge? Go to the Still website or head to your local Still dealer today. You can find us and follow Still on Instagram at still underscore au and you can follow me on Instagram as well at charlie underscore album. In our next episode, I'll be joined by my old Selling Houses Australia co-host Andrew Winter. Whilst by his own admission, Andrew might be an awful gardener, he knows how much a well-planned and maintained garden can add to the value of your property. I'll also give you all the advice you need on how to tackle a wild or overgrown garden if the time should arise. And don't forget to check out Still's blog with plenty of great gardening advice, tips and tricks, and there's one on compost as well so you can learn how to make your own. I'm Charlie Albone, thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.